is an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. Sun, sand, masks. Northeast states agreed today to reopen their beaches in time for the Memorial Day weekend. And like with everything else these days, there are limits. No more than 50% capacity, no volleyball, no concessions. And where six feet of distance cannot be maintained, masks. Not ideal, but something as summer nears. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Delaware decided to do this together, thinking that if one state opened beaches and the others didn't, that would draw a crowd. New York City beaches may still be closed by Memorial Day. New York State Senator Todd Kaminsky represents communities on the south shore of Long Island and joins us from Long Beach, where this announcement has to be good news. You know, the the beaches are the lifebloods of our communities here on the south shore of Long Island, um, you know, for our economies. Um, it's part of our identity. It's our, our children, uh, you know, look forward to it all year long. So it's just tremendous news that it can open. Um, but, you know, we need to do this in a healthy and smart way. And I believe in our neighbors. I believe that they want to work with the guidelines, work with the 50% capacity. We need our beaches to be a healthy and safe place. But that's really going to require jurisdictions all across the area to work with each other. And I believe that New York City must open for, for Long Island to have a successful beach opening. The, the pressure that will be put on Long Island beaches if the city beaches don't open is, is really untenable. And that's why I've called on the mayor of New York City to open his beaches next week, uh, not only for the good of his citizens, but for the Long Island beach openings to be successful too. The mayor says that the city just isn't there yet. What's it going to look like or what do you fear it's going to look like? If he insists on keeping the city beaches closed and next door where you are in Long Beach is open. It was not a surprise that Memorial Day was going to be on this date in May on the calendar, right? Everybody needs to be doing the preparation for their summer. You know, if you have the tens of thousands of city residents looking for beaches coming you know, to adjacent beaches on the island or New Jersey or anywhere else next weekend, it's going to be a real problem to have those beaches at 50% capacity. The mayor should be trying to move heaven and earth right now to keep enough beaches open to make this a safe and healthy Memorial Day weekend for everybody. Senator, you mentioned how the beaches are a lifeblood for shore communities on Long Island and, and up and down, you know, the eastern seaboard. And uh, now that they're open again, what does it mean? Sure. You know, our restaurants, our store, our small businesses, you know, really rely on the two to three months of beach traffic we get for them for the lion's share of their income. So we really rely on that foot traffic. When you see people on a Saturday morning streaming off a Long Island Railroad train to the beaches, think about how many lunches and ice creams and beach chairs, you know, the fact that that can continue, albeit in a, in a you know, more restricted but healthy manner is such good news and of course this is only may we're hoping if everyone continues to you know to do social distancing we'll continue to have this virus on the run and can reduce those restrictions over the course of the summer state senator todd kaminsky who represents long beach on long island we know of the economic imperative to open beaches not to mention we could all use a little more vitamin d these days dr robert gladder emergency physician at lennox hill hospital in new york public health wise is this a good idea In my opinion, I don't think it's a great idea to have the beaches open. Um, I think it's going to invite spread, and I think that it's very difficult to enforce this, um, you know, this paradigm of public health in in that setting. Um, But look, the reality is that people, you know, want to go to the beach, they want to get out of the house, they want to do something to break up the monotony. And I think um, the key is to just do this in moderation um, and, and not go all out at first. 
There's a new study that suggests our normal speaking patterns can spread coronavirus through the droplets that come out of our mouths. I guess that's why we're all supposed to be wearing masks. Exactly. And really, no one would think about this. But um, just phonation, the act of speaking, produces droplets. And these droplets are microscopic. They're the size of almost 10 times less than a hair, than the width of a hair. And normally, the, the droplets come out and drop to the floor, but they can you know, actually travel sometimes 10 to 15 feet. Does that call into question what our social distancing norm has been? Well, I mean, in general, most of these droplets do fall to the ground. The bulk of them don't travel really beyond uh, six feet, but some can. Um, I think it's important to be aware of. The studies are, again, theoretical. They're done in laboratory settings, but, um, you know, and especially when you're outdoors, you know, um, uh, you know, currents and drafts take them away. But when you're in an indoor setting with poor ventilation, uh, and poor air circulation, you know, people are at risk. Um, the six-foot rule is really something that was, um, you know, developed by public health authorities. And in all, in, in actuality, I mean, these droplets can spread beyond that. You know, we, we look at the six-foot distance, and that's sort of a, a general rule um, where you're, you know, you're generally safe, but it, the distance can go well beyond that, up to 14 to 15 feet um, in other studies. So, um, I think the public should be aware of that. And that even, you know, makes our six foot rule and it almost calls it into question. Six feet of distance, wearing masks, all of these steps were done to help doctors like yourself cope with the amount of patients that were coming in with coronavirus. As New York now seems to be on the back end of the curve, can you give us a sense of whether it worked? I think there's no doubt that it worked, um, you know, uh, at the peak of, of, of um, the number of infections we were seeing, it was uh, incredibly overwhelming. Um, the number of patients that were coming in, the uh, you know how ill they were, and how much uh, uh, you know medical care they required, you know, from our staff. Um, but the the fact is that it did work. You know, social distancing had a profound effect on the number of new cases and helped to flatten the curve. Dr. Robert Glatter from the ER at Lenox Hill Hospital. Certain racial and ethnic groups have been disproportionately impacted by coronavirus. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai has just started a new project to figure out why. Dr. Lynn Richardson is with us from the new Institute for Health Equity Research. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, we're very excited about our new Institute for Health Equity Research, which was just established by our dean, and it was really prompted by the continuing uh, revelations of uh, the depths of the disparities that we're seeing among some populations in terms of the impact of COVID. And so the Institute really is going to be focused on understanding all of the causes and manifestations of disparities and also trying to understand how we craft strategies that will eliminate disparities and achieve health equity. I think we are also going to, as we learn more, see that some of these same groups are disproportionately impacted by the longer term effects of COVID, as well as by the downstream effects of the financial impacts. And all of this is layered on what's already an unequal burden of disease, of chronic conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, congestive heart failure, kidney disease. And so really trying to understand how all of the forces that impact health 
are playing out in this new era of COVID. Right, because this didn't start with coronavirus. It's just brought it all to the fore. Well, I think that's right. It's really shown a light on things that have been going on for a long time. And because there has been so much intensive media coverage of the pandemic, I think this really has now caught the attention of people who were previously unaware of just how deep and widespread these disparities are. We're still a ways from universal testing in this country. And so it seems like, Dr. Richardson, if we're not understanding the most vulnerable populations, are we missing an opportunity to contain the virus? Well, you know, it's the interesting thing about communicable diseases is they really are the best argument for why it's important to try to optimize the health of every member of every community. Because it is with communicable diseases like COVID-19 that it becomes clear the health of all of us is connected. And so we really do have to make sure that we're protecting everyone from COVID-19 or those communities that are less protected actually the virus can uh, grow and spread, and then that becomes a danger to all of us. So you're right. It's If people are sometimes uh, more focused on their own health and their own concerns, it's really at a time of pandemic when everyone realizes, well, my goodness, we have to make sure that everybody has access to care, to prevention, to testing, to treatment, because either we're, you know, we're all in the same boat and either we will all stay healthy together or we will all get sick together. And so we really are all in this together. Dr. Lynn Richardson at Mount Sinai's new Institute for Health Equity Research. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we know summer is around the corner. So many states are starting to reopen. And we potentially are looking at some different types of environments when it comes to exposure to COVID-19. So how many people can one person infect? That's a big question people are asking as they're considering gatherings. That's right. And it's one of the intrinsic characterizations of this virus in terms of its transmission dynamics that we don't have a good grasp on. So let's do a deep dive on the epidemiology here. We're talking about a term called r naught. It's the reproductive number of a virus. This is defined as the number of people that can be infected by one sick person who then passes it to others. We know that at this point, when that number is less than one, that's a sign that the virus may be slowing and the outbreak may be being contained. When that number is over one, that can be a sign that the virus is picking up speed, spreading cases increasing. The key thing about this, Amy, this value or not, it can be different based on different parts of the country, geography. Mm. So it is not one hard and firm number. Well, do we have an idea of what the r not is for this COVID-19? Well, again, not just geography, but time. The theory is that in Wuhan, China, that number hovered around 2.5. Theory in the U.S. is that it's been kind of vacillating between 2 and 2.5. Um, now, the key thing with this is as we try to get a grasp on this number, it is really fraught according to epidemiologists, with the ability to be miscalculated and misinterpreted. So we do we do need to know it, but we also need to use it with caution. Right. All right. And then what do we still, what don't we know about that reproductive number of coronavirus? Well, the key thing, and you and I have talked about this 
before is that in order to calculate that number, you need an actual grasp on how many people are truly infected. We don't know that yet. That's why it's been challenging to calculate that number. We also don't know how the summer weather and our behavior during the summer will affect that number. And we don't yet know the r naught for each state in the country. Mm. That will be interesting inform- information. So epidemiologists, this is literally their bread and butter. Yes, so many huge tasks at hand for Absolutely. so many. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you. And we turn now to ABC's Rachel Scott with the latest headlines. Hey, Amy, good to be with you on this Friday. Let's get to some of the developments we are watching. New economic numbers causing concern. Retail sales diving in April. Economists had expected about a 12 percent drop. The figures show a more than 16 percent slide, the biggest declines in spending on clothing and furniture sales. Most Americans say the U.S. is lagging when it comes to testing availability. That's according to a new ABC News Ipsos poll. Nearly three out of four believe there are not enough tests. And more than two-thirds with a child under 18 say they are not yet willing to send their kids back to a classroom. The history-making move on Capitol Hill due to the coronavirus pandemic, a measure allowing House members to cast floor votes remotely for the first time in the chamber's 231-year existence. The vote on this follows weeks of debate, and its ramification is considered the most significant shift in House floor policy since the 70s. And the possible milestone in the original COVID-19 epicenter. Officials in China now saying the country has gone a full month without any new deaths and now fewer than 100 COVID-19 patients in treatment. To the act of kindness gaining attention back here at home, a woman in Connecticut using her stimulus check to start a soup kitchen. Carly Holloway says she had been making and delivering masks to a soup kitchen in a nearby city and realized her own hometown needed one. And now thanks to her. They have one. Amy? Thank you so much. What an awesome story to end on. We appreciate it, Rachel. Well, as states across the country reopen, community leaders are working hard to save both lives and livelihoods. Joining us now to weigh in on the reopening of the capital city of Minnesota is St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter. Mayor Carter, thank you so much for being with us today. And we know that Minnesota lifts that stay-at-home order on Monday. The Mall of America is reopening June 1st. So tell us how you plan to reopen St. Paul back up for business during these times. That's exactly right. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, We are pleased to be able to start lifting that stay-at-home order. Minnesota's fortunate. We have a governor in uh, Governor Tim Waltz uh, who took strong actions early to protect our state, uh, and that means we were able to slow the spread a bit uh, while our healthcare professionals worked to boost both testing and treatment capacity. It also means that we're going to be lifting this stay-at-home order at a time where we likely haven't seen yet our peak caseload. Uh, And so uh, as we kind of start to go back to work, as we start to kind of go back out of the house, uh, we know that masks and social distancing are definitely going to be in our future for quite a while. What about the economic strain, Mayor, that COVID-19 has had specifically on your St. Paul residents? What are you doing to combat that? Uh, That's a critical question. We know uh, there's a physical medical virus. But there's also an economic virus. The Fed reported this week that 40 percent of families uh, who earn less than forty thousand dollars a year lost their job in March. Uh, So we have a devastating toll in terms of families who can't figure out how to pay the rent, who can't figure out uh, how to feed, how to just raise some money and feed their children, have no opportunity to earn a living. And so, you know, we started early. The first step we took. Uh, was suspending water shutoffs so every family can afford to wash their hands. 
Uh, we created a, a, a fund called the St. Paul Bridge Fund uh, that provided emergency assistance to low-income families and our smallest, most vulnerable businesses. Uh, that's something that's been important work for us. Uh, and we most recently passed a suite of fine and fee uh, impacts, uh, which included uh, everything from 25% uh, reduction in business fee li business license fees uh, to just inviting people, waiving the, the fee on an impounded car to invite people to come and get their car back. And, Mayor, we know that we've reported on this. Some of the largest disparities of COVID-19 have it involved race and ethnicity. Can you talk about the impact COVID-19 has had on communities of color there in St. Paul? Uh, that's right. Thank you very much. That's so critical. My grandmother used to say uh, that when America catches the cold, black America catches the flu. Uh, and we're certainly seeing that play out right now as we see national disparities uh, around uh, uh, national uh, uh, statistics around disparities uh, in, in deaths, in number of cases that require hospitalization, et cetera, as well as in economics, uh, in numbers of people who are laid off and just, just uh, you know, struggling to try to make ends meet. Uh, that's significant. Uh, we're seeing some of those same economic disparities in particular here. Uh, and so, you know, some of the things that bridge fund is very critical. That's very important. Uh, we've stood up a language resource line to provide support to families uh, in a half a dozen different languages. And I think one of the most critical things that we're doing is bringing people together. We've already had three digital roundtables where we've brought together leaders in our communities of color. Because, you, as you know, uh, if the mayor says do something or don't do something or be, pay attention to something, uh, some people listen. But if our local pastors and our local community organi organizations uh, and community leaders uh, are all saying that together in person, they're saying it at church, they're saying it on social media, uh, hopefully people will listen in a, in a different way. Yeah, we can certainly hope that indeed. And I want to ask you this, Mayor, because is St. Paul getting the federal assistance, the federal support that it needs in terms of financial recovery? No, we're not. And I appreciate you asking that question. Uh, we have spent uh, probably just under $7 million right now already, just in the last couple of months, uh, addressing this uh, and, and, and responding to this crisis. Uh, we're facing a deeper set of needs than we ever have before, uh, than most of us have ever even imagined. Uh, and right now, we've got librarians uh, working to sew homemade masks. We've got recreation center workers delivering thousands of meals to families and children every single day. And we've got firefighters uh, working to process emergency disaster aid uh, to families. We spent over seven, we spent right around $7 million so far. Uh, and the CARES Act provided uh, resources for uh, direct resources uh, for municipalities with over 500,000 population. We're a city just over 300,000 population, so we haven't received one single dollar in federal aid uh, to address some of those general fund needs right now. Uh, and that's a challenge for us, uh, you know, as we face these kind of uh, uh, additional challenges. That's a challenge not just for us, but for cities around the country. And we need action in Washington, D.C. to do something about it. Now, we know that you are fighting for your community each and every day. Mayor Melvin Carter, thank you so much for being with us today. We certainly wish you the best. Thank you very much. Coming up next right here, when we come back, we have Dr. Jen Ashton with the answers to your latest coronavirus questions and ministering with music, the Grammy-winning bishop, who is also a COVID-19 survivor, joining us on this Faith Friday with a special message. We'll be right back. Well, we are back now with Dr. Jen Ashton, who's ready to answer your medical questions about this virus and its spread. So, Dr. Jen, first question, could this new complication in children linked to COVID-19 be a form of Ray syndrome? 
We don't think so at this point. Again, what this question is referring to is this hyperinflammatory shock picture that seems to be following COVID-19 infection in the pediatric age group. Um, CDC just put an alert out about it yesterday. But Ray's syndrome is really something we see. It's rare, first of all, very rare um, in children, usually after a viral infection at, at which time they were treated with aspirin. So um, mostly raised syndrome affects the brain, central nervous system, some liver damage. It has different features. Right now there is no indication that they share similar features, luckily. All right, yeah, good to know. Next question, are medical professionals concerned that once a vaccine is available, a segment of the population won't take it due to anti-vaccine views? Well, uh, the short answer, yes. yes. We're always concerned about that. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, the anti-vaccine movement, which across the world is very, very small, but very, very vocal. Um, It's really not just the anti-vaxxers and the pro-vaxxers. There's a huge group of people who are undecided. Um, You know, it's my opinion that we're never going to really change opinions of people who are so polarized and feel so strongly one way or the other. But the undecided group is really, um, that's the main concern from scientists, researchers, clinicians, and public health officials. So, of course, you know, we're going to be keeping an eye on that. Right, because this is a situation where one person's decision can affect someone else's. That's absolutely correct. All right, next question. I'm a group instructor at a large gym, which is reopening with distancing and lowered capacity, but masks will be optional during exercise. Do you have any tips on how we can remain safe? Oh, I'm going to be looking at this too. I mean, this is a big concern, obviously. At baseline, it's a concern in this environment because there are a lot of contacts, hot spots, and, and surfaces that people are touching, and people are breathing hard and sweating and spewing saliva all over the place. So um, no formal recommendations on this at this Mm. point. But aside from distancing, and remember, there's nothing magical about the six-feet number. It's at least six feet. So the farther apart you can be, the better. Anywhere that can have windows open, doors open, ventilation, that's going to be helpful. Wiping down those surfaces. And yes, if you're not breathing too hard, wearing a mask is really going to be important. Right, because, you know, we've all seen people, and perhaps we've even been a part when you're lifting, you know, people, it's, mm-hmm. right. it's not pretty. Not pretty. Not pretty. All right. <laughs> Next it's question. good for you, but not pretty. <laughs> exactly. Next question. Is it possible that we could see people getting tested before being allowed back to school or work? The answer is yes, but here's the 800-pound gorilla in the room when you talk about testing. We've heard a lot about, are there enough tests, tests for people to get tested? Are there enough tests for everybody? Potentially, it's for everybody to get tested multiple times, sequentially, in series, maybe every month, maybe every two weeks. Because remember, if you test negative for active infection, you, you're not negative forever. So that then gets into the, the topic of reagents and supply chains and the whole world needing these supplies uh, that go into these tests. So very, very complicated issue. And I'm thinking that we are going to see not just testing criteria for schools or workplace, but sequential and staggered and multiple testing. So that makes a lot of sense and certainly tricky. Yes, a very big issue to tackle. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you very much. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, it is Faith Friday here at ABC, and our next guest has had his own set of challenges during this pandemic. At first, focused on finding creative new ways to connect with his church, and then for weeks, battling COVID-19. Grammy Award-winning gospel singer and founder of Detroit's Perfecting Church, Bishop Marvin L. Winans joins us now. Bishop Winans, Thank you so much for being with us. And we're so happy to see that you're feeling better. You you tested positive for COVID-19 about a month ago. Would you mind telling us about, about your month. journey and how your faith got you through it? 
Well, um, I broke out with a fever. That's all I had was a fever. And when it reached 103, uh, I thought I should go to the hospital. And so that's what I did. And I actually went. They uh, checked me in, did the test. And then that Sunday, they released me. Uh, and I stayed home and the fever would not break. I stayed in my bedroom, basically, and quarantined myself uh, that Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then uh, I was getting weaker, and, mm. you know, I never had any pain associated with it, but uh, then I went back to the hospital, and uh, after going there, I stayed there 10 days, and uh, they tested me again and discovered that I did have the COVID, uh, but again, I'm, I'm a man of faith. I believe in God. I believe in the power of think it's just going into the cosmos. I believe there's a God that hears and answers prayer. And I know all of the members of the church, perfecting church, and all around the world in Africa and various places were praying for me when they heard that I had been Well, we're certainly glad that you're feeling better now. And I know that you've had to come up with some new I, ways. I actually, I tell them I'm better than ever. You oh, know, it's great. not just a matter <laughs> of, oh yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally recovered uh, and I feel great. Hopefully I looked a little better, but I'm uh, <laughs> taking care of myself. You know, that's very inspiring to hear. And I know people who are struggling right now needed to hear that from you, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I know you've come up with some new ways to connect with members of your church while you were quarantined. What have you been doing? Tell us how you've been reaching out and connecting. It's, it's, it's been a, amazing. Our general manager has uh, come up. The church has come up with ways. We've actually divided our membership up, which is pretty large. And we've called every member to see how they're doing. We have been creative during this crisis in staying in touch. We had Zoom meetings with our board, Zoom meeting with our department heads, and it's been amazing. We actually have been giving out dinners to our seniors and making sure they're okay and their family is okay. Unfortunately, we unfortunately we've had those that we've known that dear to us that have passed from this virus and we've been just kicking it up as as a church and making sure that everybody is touched that is what the gospel does it touches people where they are and we have a different perspective on reaching uh mankind yeah that is beautiful and i know that you are now featured on a new single it belongs to me with your nephew, Juan Winans, and his wife, Lisa. And as we head into the weekend, I know you have a message that you want to share with everyone who needs their spirits lifted right now. Well, this, this song is for everyone that has been touched or have other loved ones that have been touched. It simply says that it's part of the new song. It belongs to me. Healing belongs to me. That makes my healing complete. It doesn't matter how I feel. When the stripes say I am healed, I know it's mine. It belongs to me. Wow, that is beautiful. Spirits lifted, check. Uh, Bishop Marvin L. Winans, <laughs> thank you so much for that. We certainly thank appreciate you. you talking with us this afternoon. We're so happy to see you doing better than ever. We want to make sure everyone checks out your new single, It Belongs to Me. It's available on all major digital platforms. Thank you.
Thank you. We're back now as we wrap up our spotlight on police officers making a positive difference. And today, the detective in Wisconsin bringing mindfulness to his community interactions in the midst of this pandemic. My name is Mark Latond. I am currently assigned to the Detective Bureau where I handle all felony level crimes that the patrol division refers to us. I've been blessed with a very happy marriage to my wife, Jill, for 14 years. We have two awesome kids. Since the pandemic, our entire department has been transitioned. So we folded our investigations divisions and our school resource officers and everyone into control, all in support of this effort to get through the pandemic. As the public information officer, one of the things that inspired me to begin to write these posts was to stay in contact with our community. I just turned out to be the voice of our department. As this pandemic came into sharper focus and we realized the magnitude of the department, I began to craft messages that added an element of positive perspective and of optimism and because that's what all of us in the police department share and believe. It wasn't an intentional act to be anonymous. It just was irrelevant. As the posts continued to gain traction and as more and more people tuned in, there was this desire to know who was writing these posts. And truly, it's me, but I'm writing them on behalf of our department. The reaction from the community has been overwhelmingly positive. Everyone is mindful and aware of how difficult this is for everyone. Our department uh, is right here with our community members. These posts are a reminder that this is a shared experience and that we're all going through this together. There will just come a time where it just won't make any sense to keep running, and that's when I'll stop. And that will be guided by where we go through this pandemic. We may not all be impacted in the same way, but we're still all being impacted. Simply put, when faced with a bad situation, there is a choice to be made. You can either remain flat-footed with your jaw on the ground, unable to process what you receive, or you can focus all of your attention to the present moment. It is in this moment that we decide, am I going to be part of the solution or contribute to the problem? Mindfulness in a crisis is not a single event, however. It is a state of mind. Words of wisdom we all needed to hear on this Friday. Our thanks to the detective and all the officers making positive contributions to the communities that they serve. Well, as most of us are spending more time at home right now, organizing and decluttering has become a top priority. And joining us is expert organizer and member of the Annie Hoarders team, Dorothy, the organizer, Brenninger. Thanks for being with us, Dorothy. I love how you have air quotes in between your name. Uh, I know that you're the ultimate conqueror of clutter. So let's break down your spring cleaning tips. What, where do we begin? What's first? Generally, it's hard to get started. So the best thing to do is avoid perfection at all costs. We all think we need to do 100% right, but that's not how it is. And you want to know your organizing style. Are you a marathoner where you like to take a project and just work all the way from morning until midnight and get it all done? Or do you prefer to be a sprinter doing short segments, perhaps 30 minutes at a time, and then just get the projects done over a short period of time? And by the way, lots of people want to know how to become professional organizers because A, we are at home so much and we're learning how to do it. And B, there are lots of people who need jobs. And I'm offering a free webinar for people to learn how to become a professional organizer. And that's at www 
bossorganizer.com. That's great. I love that. Okay, so once we figured out what type of organizer we are, what do we do next? Well, you get the most satisfaction when you start in the most troublesome or difficult room. And I like for people to work from left to right, top to bottom, start decluttering as you go and repurpose those items or give them away. But when you do it left to right, top to bottom, then you can get this feeling of accomplishment. The frustration is eliminated and you're motivated to organize another space. All right. Yes, that's good. What's your next tip? I like for people to think about putting a cap on items. And what do I mean? So you can cap things by height, Amy. So if you have a bunch of magazines, you can use a ruler and say, okay, will I allow myself to keep one foot of magazines or, you know, six inches high? The other way is to do it by number. So in the closet, how many hangers do you have? And, you know, if it's too many hangers and you're trying to get your hands in between the clothes, it's really frustrating. Whereas if you count out what fits there neatly and easily, that's the number of hangers you might want to have in your closet. And finally, you can cap it by container size. So if you have kids' artwork, you can put it in a bin. Or if you've got all sorts of clutter, like digital clutter and electronic clutter, just keep it in one small bin. Great advice and so much. Thank you, Dorothy Brenninger, for all of your amazing tips. It's going to help all of us start spring cleaning this weekend. Thank you. Last week, Heather Jones and her children surprised workers at Fort Hudson Health System in upstate New York with 100 care packages stuffed with all sorts of goodies. And the family was inspired after watching the center's nurses care for Heather's 91-year-old grandmother as she recovered from COVID-19. So Heather Jones and her amazing family join us now. Thank you so much for being with us, guys. And Heather, I know you have had so much support from your community. You're now delivering care packages to other local nursing homes. Tell us about it. So the boys, after seeing my grandmother in a, in a window at the nursing home because of the COVID, the boys wanted to give back. And this is what we brainstormed. And at first we gave back to Fort Hudson where my grandmother is. But because we have so much support, we have decided to go on to the other three local nursing homes that are in our, our area. That is amazing. And tell me what the response has been like. Um, it's been amazing. Like everybody knows my boys locally. So... When we decided to reach out, um, many people left things on our doorstep. Many people Venmoed me money. We picked up many porch, like porch pickups. Um, yeah, so the, the response has just been amazing. Wow. What's inside the care packages? You want to tell them, bud? You want to tell them? Go ahead and tell them what's in it. Um, candy, waters, and... Lots of snacks. Uh-huh. Some had a little, a, a little pick-me-up note. Just different things. We had different donations, so different things went in each one of them. That's awesome. And I know we should point out you guys are all wearing different colored shirts that together make a rainbow. And there's a specific reason behind that. Tell us what it is. So when this whole pandemic started, somebody in the 518 made hashtag 518 Rainbow Hunt, where um, kids and families started making rainbows and putting them in their windows. All different kinds of, of rainbows, putting them in their windows to let essential no- workers know that we are thinking of them as they pass by. And oh. it's kind of low, blown up from 508. It's, it's gone national now. So that's pretty amazing as well. That is beautiful. And you're amazing. Heather Jones and your entire family. Thank you so much for everything you're doing, guys. We really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you.
All right, final thoughts now from our Dr. Jen Ashton. So, Amy, you know that the theme of this week was for me to share with you some sayings in medicine of how doctors think. And the one I wanted to end on today is this saying that applies to medicine and also applies to life. When something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And what I mean by that is right now, unfortunately, there are a lot of scams involving this pandemic, and they can involve anything from charities to insurance bills, medical care, student loans, payment. I mean, you name it. Um, Unfortunately, it either is bringing out the best in people or the worst. Um, So scientifically, medically, the way we think is have a degree of scientific skepticism, as I always say. And remember that when something sounds too good to be true, you want to think twice. You always want to have realistic hope and be cautiously optimistic. That is certainly very important advice to think about as we head into this weekend. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.